Welcome to episode 53 of the Midlife Pilot Podcast. It's a podcast where we talk all things aviation for those who are starting their aviation journey in midlife. This podcast is about sharing our experiences and the greater community's experiences as a midlifer. So whether you're a student pilot, a seasoned veteran, or an enthusiast who maybe wants to learn, we're glad you're with us. My name's Ben. I'm an instrument-rated pilot here in the Atlanta area flying a Cessna 182. Hopefully finishing up the commercial rating this week. With me, as always, we have Brian in the heart of Music Row. Right in the middle of it. Yeah, In the middle of it, flying yep. a Cherokee. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing great. If you listen carefully, you can probably hear bachelorettes screaming or... <laughs> Parading or around with their white claws. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I do have some more of those white claws in the fridge. I, do you want me to go get one? Should I get one just as a prop? I think or, you should oh, save yeah. them for April. Okay, well, that's prop. not going to be too yes. hard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Also with us tonight, we have Ted, sport pilot extraordinaire from Portland, Oregon, flying a CTLS, the, what we like to call the plastic egg. Hey, Ted, how's it going? The egg doing well, yeah. Weather's been terrible, but I noticed two of my friends were out flying today because it was like, it's the first flyable day in like 10 days. And I had thought about skipping the podcast to go fly. So I flew today for a business meeting down in Columbus. And when I got back, the manager of our tower is a guy that I, from my hometown. And he told me that he was getting off his shift and I saw him in the parking lot. He said, we have over 100 IFR tickets sitting up in the cab right now. Everybody feels like it's, they're abandoning ship or maybe they're coming in. I don't know, but it's, it was pretty busy out there today. It was the first pretty day we've had in a little while. We'd like to let everybody know we stream every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time at youtube.com slash at Midlife Pilot Podcast. We have a live chat. It's open for questions and comments. The audio version of this podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you're, you get your podcast from. Please, please subscribe and uh, go to either Apple or Spotify and leave us a five-star review. We'd love to be able to read it on the podcast. We have a, an amazing Discord community. You can send us an email at midlifepilotpodcast at gmail.com and ask to be invited. We'll send you an invitation and you can join an amazing group. And we have a merch store. Ted, are we okay on the merch store right now? You said we have a merch store. It's like, about that? We don't <laughs> have a merch store right now? Yeah. Technical difficulties? Uh, which is fine. So we're working it'll be through. Up in, it'll probably be up in another week or so. Um, it just makes it more rarefied if you already have something. Yeah. If you're desperate and you want a sh- if you want a shirt, one of the shirts that we've got or something, email us, hit us up on Discord. We can get some of those drop shipped out to you. But otherwise, we'll have the store up in hopefully a week. Yeah. And what we're trying to do is raise the value of everything because nobody can buy anything now. So that's what we're really trying to do. Tonight, we have with us someone who I'm proud to call a friend. Nathan Ballard, who is a CFII here in the Atlanta area. We got a couple of feedbacks and we just thought it'd be a great idea uh, to bring someone on who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> For the right, first Brian? time ever on the Midlife Pilot <laughs> Podcast. Right. So Nate, welcome to the podcast. We're glad you're with us. Thank you, Ben, Brian, Ted, and all the people in the chat that we see on Discord all the time. It's nice to be part of this live. Really glad to have you. I thought we'd start out and guys jump in if you want to do something different, but um, we got two pieces of feedback. There were actually three that I just wanted to touch on. We can read them. 
and then Nate, you can react. Tell us what you think, and we just we can start out there and see where it takes us. How does that sound? Yep. Yes. Let's do it. All right. So we got feedback from um, Biff B. In keeping with the midlife theme, I think it'd be interesting to have a CFI talk about their experiences in training midlifers versus others. What is possibly easier or more of a struggle in their experience? They could talk about PPL or instrument or whatever. But the question, I guess the heart of the question is, you are an instructor at a flying club out of Lima Zulu uniform. And I imagine you get all types. So is is there a big difference training a cell phone? There is. And I've done some instruction at a flight school as well. So I've seen it a lot. And just for everybody listening or watching, I've got about a thousand hours of dual given, which to me makes me feel like I'm just getting started. Like I've learned so much in that (laughs) first hundred, 200 hours. And like, I've learned something new every time. One of the things that I think is really different about, we'll say people are pre-midlife and midlife pilots is that the midlife pilots, I'd say 95% of them have the motivation, the drive to get it done, right? They're going to, they come prepared. If you if you ask them to do something, they're going to do it. They know the value of time and money, and they don't want to waste either of those. So I'd say probably the experience of working with someone who's midlife, from an instructor standpoint, you know they're going to show up ready to work. So we understand more so the value of time and money, but <laughs> on the opposite end of that balance, we know it's probably going to take us a little more time and a little more money. Actually, you know what? Maybe we don't know that. So maybe that's a good next question for you is because I think I was one of these for sure where I just thought I I have kinesthetic awareness. I've done a lot of studying ahead of this. I really think that I'm going to have a knack for this. I think that I'm going to be able to just jump right in and feel right at home. And it couldn't have been further from the truth. And I remember just even taxiing on my first lesson and just, and struggling with just, you know, keeping it on the line or whatever. And I just thought, oh boy, I I was overwhelmed. So was that free castering, Brian, before Nate got got a, was it free castering or is it steering? It was a, it was idiot castering, uh, <laughs> which is, I guess, technically called bungee castering. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was just a 172. So, um, but I guess my question for you, Nate, while I do appreciate that you think that we are more responsible, and I was definitely, re- I was planned and studied and prepared, but I wasn't prepared for what I wasn't prepared for. And that's, that is a good point. And, I, and then while we talk at midlife, I'm, I'm not good. That is something that is different. The younger folks or less seasoned, We'll say they are more malleable, right? They're, they don't have some of those biases that we have after 20, 30, 40, however many years in our lives that, uh, that we do. So when I've encountered something like that, I always try to bring it back to something that the person knows. Brian, you're, you're in music, right? So I would try to make the connection between music and flying to try to help that person bridge that gap and maybe eliminate some of those biases. You know, does it work? I don't know. Ben, you know, you could maybe. Say yeah, what or not, but part of, I think part of my problem, and you probably have seen this because Nathan is actually my CFI for my commercial rating. He probably showed up a little bit of this in the TAA airplane that we flew, but I think we set as midlifers, we set a very high level of expectations on ourselves. And when we don't hit those expectations, we're also probably a lot harder on ourselves 
which creates its own sets of problems. The first landing when I was doing my PPL that basically my instructor's hands were completely off rudder and I greased it. And I was pissed off about it because I didn't learn anything from it. And I started, I knew it was going to be downhill from there. And I just had that mindset, of course, that happened. And we worked our way out of it. When we you went up- your way out of a good landing. Yeah, I did. As, as weird as it may sound, but because I knew it was going to happen, maybe it was self-defeating. But when we were flying together, flying an autopilot that's so much more capable than one I have in my airplane that I've flown for 950 hours, I felt like I was completely task saturated, operating an airplane, much less an instrument approach or anything else. And I think there was a couple of times when Nathan could said, Ben, what's your name? And I'm going to have to tell him to stand by. I just, so I, I think there's some, we put some unrealistic expectations as midlifers. I don't know. Maybe you see that uh, more so with the younger groups. I, if you're asking me, I, there, that is true. There's a higher expectation of yourselves. And one of the things I had a flight this morning with a midlifer and I wrote, you know, I take notes while they're flying in my, in big, bold letters for him. I just said, relax, just relax. <laughs> That's don't, don't be so hard on yourself. Like you're saying, just relax up there and let it flow and you fly right. so much better and safer in the end. The midlifer also has more, I guess it's more humble, I'd say, and open to constructive criticism, feedback, whereas some other groups may be, I nailed this landing. I'm wonderful. But the thing that gets me, by the way, is just that I feel in terms of my instincts and my reaction times and my perception of things and controlling, you know, drive, whatever it is I'm doing, I feel like I'm the same as I ever was. I feel like my reaction times and my instincts are, are just as good as they ever were. I think that for me, it was just defeating because I realized that that decay had happened over such a protracted period of time that I had no awareness of that at all. And when you talk about that malleability, I feel like that's part of that. And I think what a huge contributing factor is, Nate, is that we in midlife have decided to be locked in life already for a long time in the things that we're already good at. And have yeah. we're actually maybe people that are so experienced in our fields or whatever that perhaps people come to us for you know, instruction or guidance, or we're the kind of maybe the quasi experts in whatever our realms are. And to just go from your life being made of all of those many knowledge empires to all of a sudden just being an idiot who can't even do the most basic things. And just, to, we just haven't been just sucked at something in so long. I think that's a huge part of it. It is. And one of the things also with the midlifer though, you know, Brian, you're going after it or whoever is going after it because you really want it. And there's that desire and that motivation we talked about in the beginning. And you become this sponge for knowledge. You're looking for more ways to improve, more ways to be safer. And that's such a benefit to being learning how to fly or advancing your flying in midlife because you recognize that you know what you don't know and you want to find out. And that's a great point. Yeah, no one's no one knows everything, but you re actually recognize, hopefully, that there's a lot I need to learn. That's spot on. Yes, tangential a lot. It's as I was in training. I know this is true of other people. I'll say we to make it not just about me, but you can include me. Kind of, okay, Ben and I hit a wall. Mine, I always say, was like between hour eight and twenty, where it's like I am not advancing. I don't know that I'll actually be able to figure this out pre-solo and 
there's no way I'd trust myself in a plane at that point. And just not, I just feel like I'm just treading water. Do you see that? What do you do about that? How common is that? And are there people that don't progress? That happens all the time. That plateau where you're just, you know, eight to 20 hours, like you're talking about. At that stage, you're, you're out there beating up the pattern, you're doing oh, yeah. stall after stall. You're hitting these emergency procedures. And that's where, and again, I don't know anything. This is just my style. As soon as you see that, you need to have fun, right? Yeah. Hey, let's go to St. Simon's and get barbecue. Let's do that first cross country. Let's have some fun in the air instead of just worrying about were you seven degrees off your heading when you recover from your power <laughs> off stall? Who yeah. cares, right? Just have yeah. some fun. So I think that's probably, at least that would be my remedy there. Hopefully, uh, let's, yeah. let's bring some fun back in the air. Are there people that get stuck at that point though? Or is that does that always resolve itself? I'd, I'd say most, I'd say it almost always resolves itself if the person wants to continue. Just take a different direction if that's the case. Yeah. Does it happen a lot? It happens, yes, it happens a lot. It happens with, at any level, private student, all the way up to instrument. And as far as it goes, it definitely happens a lot. And and it's pretty apparent when it happens because the student, pilot, whomever is going to be, the frustration is going to show. Yeah. So let me ask this. We had um, someone on our Discord server. I couldn't find the email. They taken their check ride. They're a private pilot. And they're now starting to explore. They're going out on cross countries and they're taking friends with them. But this particular person said he has found himself getting the jitters. And s several of us in the Discord chat said, go up with a CFI, address those. But I'm curious, how would you address that? That, And it happened to me. It was a Nordo experience, and it really shook me. Now, it wasn't, I got in, it was fine. And I look back on it, and it was really not that big of a deal. But at the time, and, you know, our radio went out. It's not the end of the world. But it caused me to maybe not take the next flight that I was planning on taking because I, I was shaken up by it. So what's your recommendation there? I would say, yes, go up with CFI, figure out what it is. But I wouldn't just shun the jitter. I wouldn't shun the nervousness saying, well, I, you know, something's wrong, I shouldn't go fly. I took my daughter and two of her, her friends on a flight. And do you think I had the jitters when I took them recently? Yeah. Yeah, you know, they make me nervous because I'm putting yeah. my daughter and her friends in the air. I feel like I have pretty good experience and everything's going to be okay, but there's all, you know, there's that inherent risk to what we do. I'd say, don't feel bad about being nervous. Everybody's going to get nervous at some point or have something come up. And I think somebody put it in the chat, like, that's such a good opportunity to learn, right? And, and to figure out why am I, why is this? Is it because I'm, you know, I'm uncomfortable around clouds or I don't like busy airports. And that's the time, like you said, Ben, go get somebody to go fly with you and take a little bit of pressure off and experience what it is you're nervous about. That was Dan B. about a month ago that asked that. He said jitters and spooks was the other word that he used, but he said he just read Killing Zone and he thought maybe that was part of it. <laughs> and that's a great book to read and reread about the time you do your check ride, I think. But um, it's also the time, like right after your check ride, it was like, how do I expand my minerals? How do I get comfortable with the things that my license says I can do now? And that was, for me, was very specific to that, that time period of right after is, I know this is the worst that I'm going to be as a pilot. How do I improve from here? You know, when you're, when you finish a check ride, you're generally like pretty, you're pretty good, but you're in the lanes of the ACS, right? Which is just, yeah, here's what you have to do to pass this check ride, but it's not the real life stuff you're going to do. So you got to, you just have to get out there and do it. Probably the number one thing that I see that 
maybe, I'm not sure, causes the jitters, but these things is you get your ticket and you stop flying. You go from flying three times a week to once a month. It's all going yeah. away. You got to you got to keep practicing. You got to keep practicing. Yeah. I think the one thing that happens too is that a lot of people, not everybody, some people's training is more protracted over time. Uh, and I would imagine for a lot of midlifers, that's the case because you're trying to fit it in where you can. But I would say seems by and large, most people kind of get after it uh, because we do want to save time and money. And we realize that that is the way to do it. Um, it's also just how to have more knowledge actually stick. But I guess what that means though, is that you're generally going to be learning everything within a time frame of say spring and the summer that you trained for your private. So in that time frame, a little bit changes. The weather maybe changes a little bit. Maybe there's a couple little things around the airport that you're used to. But once you get past that, and once you've gotten your certificate, and once you get out there, all of a sudden, all the these sort of micro variables trying to present themselves. And I think that is the subtext or the driver for, I think, a lot of these kind of uh, nervous first hundred hours after PPL is because you're out of the nest. The government and some dude named Nate has said, you can do this, you're fine. And then you're thinking, I'm barely fine in the construct of environments that I know and understand. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, leave the nest, go fly, be free. And there's a lot to stare down. There's a lot to to look at. And I just, I was even thinking about it when I was flying today, just about, there was probably three or four things that happened that were very notable things that were either almost mistakes or weird things, variables that came up that made me, I reacted to them in a much, I'm relaxed now because I've got some basis. But when you're early on, especially I think as a midlifer, you don't have as much of that, you're, I think, less likely to have a bad pilot attitude, right? Or feel like you're invincible because you know, when you're staring mortality in the face like we are naturally without the risk of flying. Today, I was going downwind to base and a 172 came, was flying opposite corner, like not even in the traffic flow of the pattern of this airport, a hundred feet above us, 200 feet above us. I mean, I could read the tail number and it was one of the, the, the shock of first of, is that, it was just right there. I just stayed cool and I just kept on my, I just, Stayed predictable, but started descending and kind of saw what was going on. They were not talking. Uh, they definitely didn't respond to my um, cheerful conversation. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they were not on ADSB, nothing. And then it's one of those things, too, when you analyze it after the fact, you're thinking, okay, they're a high wing. We're a low wing. They should have seen us, but they were not acting like they saw us at all. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, if, if I was flying on 172, we probably wouldn't have seen them. And it starts to cascade like that. But ultimately, everything was fine. Today, they said taxi out after this baron, but there was a baron way down the taxiway. I didn't realize that they were talking about the baron that was coming up this way. And I almost jumped the gun on that baron. You know, there's all these little, when you're learning those, just those little idiosyncratic things. I think we get really caught up in maneuvers and ACS standards and all these things, which you should be. But I think that in the actual reality of flying, once you get out there, it's just all these little micro incidents, you know, confusion or uncertainty or fear. Do you feel like that the private pilot training really, there's no way that can prepare you for all of the variables? There, It does not. The way I like to say it is, or explain it, or when people ask is, oh, I went to college, I got a degree. What I used in my career, I learned about 10% in college, 90% has been on the job. And it's kind of the same thing. If, if you pass your check ride, the government is saying, all right, you get a C basically. I mean, you may get an A plus on it. 
However, you just need a C. So the real learning that has to take place for you to be a safe, proficient pilot is you going out there and doing it. And like Brian, you went to Marfa, you did tailwheel. I would, I don't know. I would just hazard, hazard a guess that like your Mar- Marfa trip, you learned probably more than you'd learned in any other cross country trip. You got real density altitude experience, right? New Air Force, new terrain. I'm not speaking for you, but. Yeah, no, it was, yeah. Every bit of the types of weather and the lay of the land, everything I saw was all like the whole deck had gotten shuffled. And that's what I think is important is going out and flying other planes. In preparing for my check ride, I filled out for the first time in a long time, my minimums, my personal minimums, which is really weird to do at this point in time because oh, it used to be yeah. really easy. Yeah. But IFR, well, my how many feet above minimums? I've shot a dozen or so approaches to minimum. So it, but it didn't feel right. I feel like I'm not being a safe person when I'm like, oh, I'm a hotshot pilot. I'm going to go. That's my minimums is the minimums. It's not like that, but it's every time I've expanded my deck or to what you're saying, you're learning was usually by accident. It was, I learned how to fly in the summer because I took a trip and I didn't have an IFR ticket. And then I got stuck down somewhere. I had a buddy tell me, if you're going to fly in South Georgia in the summer, you need to be where you're going by one o'clock and you're not going to leave after that. And he, it was, it's that experience and how you expand what you're comfortable at doing. And you're going to have jitters while you do it just to wrap a bow on this. That's that jitters means that you're expanding, you're leveling up, so to speak. Um, Nate, is, Nate, is there any hope for us? <laughs> I, I listen, if you, like we we're talking about, if you're in this at this stage of life, you have that thirst, like you want it. So of course yeah. there's hope. Yeah, definitely. You just got to get out there and keep doing it. Let me pull up a couple of comments here and then ask a question. But uh, Elliot Cox, Mr. Lightning Strike this week, noted that a DPE friend of his said most candidates don't know how to use FBOs. It's not something you learn in training. Totally true. We've talked about that on here. We've talked, um, Chris C was talking about that. Where do I park my plane at a new airport? This is what you learn from uh, check ride to the first 30 hours after the check ride, it seems. And I'll say about that, there's so much of that that is not taught. Is yeah. It could be the FBO. How do you do that? Or where do I park my plane? How do I start a cold engine? What are all these yeah. things that are going to happen in the real world that is not an ACS, is not on your syllabus, but you're going to have to deal with? So I mean, that's a great comment that he put So, in. So my question for you was, I've been wanting to hear, what's your flying story? When did you start motivation? What got you to here? Uh, I, I'll keep this brief to not make all the listeners leave right now, but I was a 17-year-old private pilot, instrument, commercial, you know, right in a row. Come from a flying family. My dad was an Air Force Delta guy. My mom has her commercial multi. My granddad was an Army um, Army Air Force or World War wow. II flight instructor. So it, was kind of, it wasn't an expectation. Like, it was just theirs. I took the opportunity. However, much like probably a lot of us, uh, maybe that had that path or in midlife, I took a break. College, life, kids. Yeah. And then several years ago, I was like, kind of like that. And I always like my, my day-to-day job. I do a lot of teaching and instructing and coaching. I was like, I really want to do that. And that's when I got into like, just dove right in with instruction and like, how can I take what I hopefully know from my other world or life experience, bring it into aviation to make us say, where are the gaps? And that's kind of what I enjoy doing right now is like trying to find those things that we talk about in flying that we t- have been talking about for 80 years that haven't changed. And I like to say, why are we doing that? 
right? Or is that really what we need to be talking about? Or is there something better? So that's where I am now. Just I am a part-time CFI and only take a handful of people and I, and I love every bit of it. He's very good at it. By the way, he's got a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Nathan Ballard. Is that right? Nathan Ballard, safe for flying. That, that's it. Yeah. He takes a different approach in how, especially if you're a CFI, but things that you don't always think about very poignant to the topic we're just talking about, everything that we need to learn after we get our PPL. And that's actually where I first came in contact with him with his YouTube channel. And then we kind of kind of connected after that. One more feedback uh, from Sean W., who apparently is working on his instrument rating. I work on my instrument with other pilots. It is clear there are easy wa- easier ways to build your instrument time with being able to flight share. There's a lot of misnomers out there about how to do it and properly to do it properly and log the time. This would be a good thing to talk about, as I'm sure a lot of midlifers look to get their instrument after their private pilot. Can you help some of these midlifers understand when you can log the IFR time? Yes. If you go on Facebook and ask her and get a hundred different answers, that's a fact, right? That's one thing. You need to go to the source, right? You need to go to the, to, to the regulations. However, if you want all that put into a summary, AOPA has one of the best summaries. Just search AOPA, PIC, acting versus logging, PIC. That's going to be your best bet. They can cite all the regulations. But for the midlifer or someone that's in instrument training, Really, the key to success is, yeah, you got to grind through some of those hours, right? You're going to have to do some safety pilot stuff with another private, with another private pilot. That, that's really good for just checking a box, just getting that, that number of hours. Is experience that great? Probably not, but it's something you have to do. And that's probably one thing that's, we could go on a tangent on some of our hour requirements. But the best instrument candidates I see come to, you know, having checked those boxes, but they've done their written, they've done their study, they're, they're ready to get after it and not, um, not just start from the beginning. So if you use that time where you're doing some safety pilot stuff, where you're getting some of that PIC time shared and getting that simulated instrument time, great. But try to make it not just, hey, I'm going to fly to St. Simon's in a straight line. I try to do something with it instead of just um, trying to check that box of having X number of hours. Hear that, Ben? I do hear that. <laughs> Don't fly to St. Simon's. Stop <laughs> in a straight line. No, not in a straight line. So I'm going to just make as many stops as I can now. Um, yeah. And I will say this. I've stopped filing IFR almost every single time now. I used to do it every single time, regardless of the weather. And I'm taking the Brian Siskin approach. And I'm going to go and explore that quarry that I saw the other time or uh, whatever the case may be. I've been reading the a lot in the chat. There's a lot of people in our chat right now who have never pumped gas until yeah. maybe even after their PPL. So I think to boost my YouTube channel, which only has three videos on it, <laughs> is I want to go do how to pump your own fuel, because at least <laughs> there's a dozen people that I know that might want to can learn from it. That's a, that's a real thing. I, I didn't get shown any of that stuff. Just had to go figure it out. But so Nate, I have a, a question for you. I'm curious. I know that there's a thing that CFIs some sort of secret crypt of information that you have access <laughs> to, you know, it's uh, the fundamentals of instruction or whatever they call it, right? Whatever your... Oh, yeah. FLI, yeah. Yep. Whatever your strange credo is, it's got, I don't know, I'm sure it's like an elaborate brass apparatus <laughs> with beams of light coming out of it. That In that, I know that there are things that 
are about the psychology of instruction. And I think if there's any part of me that ever might be interested in being an instructor, I think that this is the part of it that I think would be most fascinating. And I wonder about what your experience is, but just reading, reading a person that you probably don't know, taking in all the subtle little cues, your brain's doing all these calculations about probably like how they handle their pen or is their stuff organized? Are they in a hurry? Um, do they have an awkward laugh? Uh, do they talk on a podcast and keep saying things in the same tone over and over again? No, but, uh, <laughs> but do you have in your reads on people, do you ever find that maybe you had it all wrong about someone? Like I can see maybe a situation where you just thought, wow, this is going to be a long, this is going to be an uphill journey for this very well-meaning uh, student. And then for whatever reason, they're just unconsciously sort of a wizard and they're nailing everything. You know, you know, do you have things where you just kind of totally wrong? Yes. I would say in my early part of my instruction, you look at somebody like, I know what that person's going to be about. But now, you know, you wait. Let's, I love to see when I fly with somebody for the first time, I love to see, you know, what's their mindset? Are they safety oriented? Are they using checklists? How are they like commanding the airplane to do what they want it to do? I guess it's those little things you just start to pick up, like, where are they in their aviation journey? Certainly, I've made that mistake of, well, this person has, I've flown with people that have 30,000 hours, and I think, I'm going to do nothing on this flight. And some of those 30,000 hour pilots are the ones that, like, try to kill you. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you just really, that that is one of, the, in that secret credo of CFIs, like, one of the things that is a killer of CFIs and, and People in the aviation community is complacency, right? If you just assume that the person is going to do this or whatnot, that as soon as you get relaxed, aviation will punch you in the face and remind you that um, you better be on your toes. That has happened more times than I would like. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I was just curious also about in those scenarios too, where I appreciate what you're saying. Do you have some weird idiosyncratic tell that's just in your head? That's the one thing. I don't know, just some stupid thing, like the way that they do this or the way that they handle this control, or if they forget this one thing. Yes. <laughs> I knew All it. right. Here's the secret. Okay. Okay. So if you get in the airplane and I see that you are deathly afraid of the red mixture knob, I know yeah. we're gonna, we have some work to do. Okay. But I know. I would not expect that. that. That's why, because it's not something like you can fly around all day long with the mixture rich. Is it building, you know, deposits in your engine? Yeah, it probably is, right? Is it taught in the ACS that you need to lean your engine? It's not. But if you've gotten to that, if you've gotten to the point where you realize I need to take care of the airplane, which is taking care of me, I, that makes me realize, okay, you know, they probably, maybe they don't, they don't know all the, the reasons why we lean the mixture, but they know they, it's something they need to do. To, pro to treat that airplane properly so it will treat them properly. That's probably okay. my one tell. Yeah. That's my thing. That just brings up one more thing. I've been thinking about this a lot. As midlifers, we all grew up, if the lawnmower is broke, you got to fix it. We have, I think, more than maybe kids coming up now, a sense of how combustion engines work and how basic systems work because these are old technologies or whatever. But I guess, do you find that systems knowledge or just the fun, like if you're trying to explain the mixture to someone, you're having to relationally explain how an engine works. <laughs> do, you, do you find that's getting lost more on people now because they don't really have poor parents that are forcing you to mow the lawn? 
I'll say this. I'll be, I'm going to be delicate with this. For the people that want to want aviation and to learn aviation because they want it, because they're passionate about it, they do have that drive and the desire to, to learn why do we lean the mixture? For the people that are using it as a stepping stone to fly bigger airplanes, it's not as much of a concern. And yeah, 10 second story. I have a CFI friend who just went to work for a big school in a different state and they have dozens and dozens of planes and their operating procedures specifically say, do not lean the mixture because they're scared that the students are going to lean it too much. So they're causing themselves thousands upon thousands of dollars in maintenance and probably earlier engine teardowns. But it's just not right, right? That's not how yeah. we fly. Man, what do you do when a student's done the same thing over and over again and you've got to tell them some, the, the thousandth way how to understand or how to do something? How do you get past that wall and how do you deal with your own frustrations when you're at that point? A lot of times that's going to, that reflects on me, right? If I haven't, if I'm telling something, you know, 10 times, I'm not delivering the message properly. You know, if you look back in, I'm going to go 90s basketball. If you look back at like the 90s, 1990s Bulls, right? And you ask Phil Jackson, like, why do you treat Michael Jordan differently than <laughs> whoever else, so Bill yeah. Cartwright or whoever? It's because they're different, right? They learn differently or they perform differently. So that's me. My job as a coach, I need to figure out how do I connect with you? If I tell you 10 times something you don't know, I, that's me not doing my job. That's the way I see it at least. So I have a quick story about that. When I was doing PPL training, I was struggling with steep turns. Holding the engine up in my airplane can be challenging at times. I had one instructor who was definitely, who made no bones about it. He was at 1,450 hours and was putting his <laughs> resumes in. And and he kept pounding on the dad, look outside, don't look inside. He went off literally like two weeks later. And then I got another guy who I really liked. And I guess he had told him that I was struggling with the, this maneuver. And so he went and got a towel. And he just covered up the dash. <laughs> and I was forced to look outside. And of course, everything got better. It's the different styles that you're talking about. And so, yeah, I thought that was a very intuitive of him trying to come up with a different way to pound something into this thick head of mine. So I, I see that I've, I saw it with myself and I've seen it with, with other people. If you're starting to struggle a little bit, go up with them CFI. And I'm saying that because I assume there's at least a handful of students listening to this. If you've never flown with a second CFI, even if your CFI is fantastic, fly with another one. You learn different things. You get different styles. Even if everything is completely right from the first CFI, you get the different style from a second one. And yeah, it's not just a oh, great well, point. It's not just you're a bad CFI or you're a bad student for the CFI. It's also get more experience with more CFIs. And yeah. Ted, you're absolutely right. And I, I sit here, I'm an instructor. I don't know everything. And Ben, I, ben that's why we had you on though, Nate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <Damn. laughs> oh, okay. All right. Sometimes the fit is just not there. Maybe a personality thing. And I've had people like flog me and I never hear from them again. And that's okay. I'm not their style. And some people are like, they're not my style. Right. Yeah. Chad, you're absolutely, you gotta, you can't just, you know, one person's word for it. Cause there's a lot of different ways to, to do it. Yeah. So there's been a good discussion in the comments more about who's refueled, who hasn't, and got some high hour pilots that have never refueled. But the one reminder there was that uh, Wendell Geek did a video on how to fuel 
you know, he's got a good video. We'll link it in the doobly-doo of uh, actually fueling your plane. So at least one of us has done that video so you can watch it. So now and I don't have the, to worry about it. Thank God. Yeah. On the other hand, things that, that a CFI teaches are the things that keep you from dying. So learning how to go through an FBO is less important than spinning on final. And not to mention that one of my most impacting things that I read in the killing zone was, uh, I believe it was a couple of experienced pilots, or maybe they were both instructors, but they stopped somewhere, they got fuel, they both thought the other guy got it, they both oh, they left yeah. both fuel caps off and took off and ended up having a fuel exhaustion situation, double-edged thing of, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than a plane full of pilots, a <laughs> uh, thing that I learned from a guy. And then also just, um, if somebody's even, if somebody's doing something for you, the odds of something not being right are even that much greater and you need to be all over it. And the funny thing was, is that I read that in the killing zone and then I had a lesson either the same day or the next day. And I went out, we, me and my instructor got in the plane for the lesson. FBO came out, fueled us up as a 172. So was, you, know, you can't see what they're doing really. And we actually got in the plane and you know how it is. Like once you kind of get in the plane, it's like, do you really want to get out to look at something uh, or whatever you really got to you know. Yeah. And, and I told my instructor, I said, look, I just read this thing. We I, Did you check? I didn't check. And I just read this thing. And sure enough, uh, the line guy had left one of the caps off. And that it just, that was a, the odds of, because that's never happened in any other scenario ever, except for the one time where I was really hyper-focused on it right after I had read about it. Be mindful that if you have people doing stuff for you, you've got to really, it's up to you to go behind them. Don't expect anything to be right. I uh, want to put it out to the those watching on YouTube. If you have any questions, uh, send them in now. I want to take this time uh, to remind everybody that you can support us at Spotify for as little as 25 cents uh, episode. If we keep doing this on a weekly basis, send us your feedback. We love getting it. We, I will respond as quickly as possible or one of us will. Midlife Pilot Podcast at gmail.com. All of this will be in the show notes. I'm sorry. The doobly doos. Doobly doo. Yep. I'm not. And there's one other major item that I want to address that's not necessarily Nate related, but we do get a lot of feedback of people saying, I don't know if I qualify as a midlifer. And I just want to say, as my friend, my co-host said, we're all in the midst of something. We're all midlifers. So we're not exclusive here. We want you to join us. I just wanted to put that out there. There's nothing more midlife than saying, I'm not sure if I'm a midlifer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, I don't hey, care Nate, if you're eight or 80, you're a midlifer. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Nate, do you want to, uh, being a CFI and looking out at all of us schmucks trying to make our way, do you want to see more people become CFIs? Wouldn't you like to see Ben become a CFI? What would you tell somebody that's on the, maybe just had it in their mind that they might want to be a CFI? I think Ben, don't get a big head here. I think he'd be an excellent CFI. He's good at talking. That's really hard for a lot of people. And the thing you need to have to be a good CFI, you have to have the drive and the passion and desire to be immersed in this, to make sure that everybody gets home safe after every flight. Ben clearly has that. And one of your previous guests, and I've told him this before, who is known on the internet for being funny, I've told Brian Turner, he needs to be a CFI. He, like, yeah, because he's such a student, right? If you look at his multi-engine stuff, like he's a student, he absorbs it. And that's the kind of person you want to pass yeah. it on. They know what it means to learn and then to pass that on. So honestly, anybody, Ted, Brian, Ben, anybody that we interface with on the Discord server, because you have that desire to learn and talk about things that have happened and get better and get safer, 
that's who we need to see a fox. That's who we real desperately need being instructors out there. Uh, one of my biggest fears is that I would be a good instructor and I've got it in my head that I don't want to do it and I'm scared I might enjoy it too much. I don't know. We'll cross that bridge. I got a couple of years to go before uh, I can do something on that. Oh, wait, I have one more thing. I'm sorry, Nate. How do you sneak control inputs without them seeing it? I, I, you know what? I, this, it's, <laughs> it's funny. One of the things I tell everybody, first time I follow you, you're going to see me shift my hands and feet. It doesn't matter if you're a 10-hour pilot or 80-billion-hour pilot. I'm going to be ready. And they'll know that I'm not going to sneak in anything, you know, with the amount of hours that I've taught now. But I can tell on short final or even mile, mile and a half final, I can tell you how the landing's going to go <laughs> yeah. before yeah. we even get close to that pavement. <laughs> oh, I used to love how my CFI would have his coffee, you know, it'd be early in the morning. And you could just, I could already tell, like, we're on final and he starts to look for a place to put his coffee. <laughs> you know what I mean? I already know, like, I'm not doing something right. Yeah. I just wanted to point out for our friend, DJ Alpha Juliet, you'll probably get a discount because I'm getting the upcharge. <laughs> Flying with me is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, AJ was talking get... about doing his commercial uh, out of Atlanta. Uh, nice. You three, AJ, Nathan, Ben are all in the Atlanta area. And yeah. I, I, I think that passes this check ride. Like he can knock that CFI out. There's your new instructor right there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, God to help us all. Jeff asked the question just a minute ago. Do you try to distract students to see if they'll tell you to be quiet? Or every once in a while on final, I'll start at talking about football, or whatever. Not so often. <laughs> a lot of times when they tell me to be quiet, I had the guy today. I was telling him something about whatever because we like to talk, and he told me to be quiet. And at the end of the lesson, I said that was the best thing you did today. Yeah. So yeah, never ever be afraid to tell somebody shut up. I'm flying the airplane and. The DPE, the CFI, who your passengers, they'll all be like, this person's got it. So definitely do that. But. Not on the lesson two, though. <laughs> I found myself over 200 feet low coming into downwind because I'm just chatting the air off this like alternate CFI that I had. And I was like, hang on, we're having a great conversation. But I am like, when you're that far off, you realize like, you can't do this. And that was that probably I learned more from that than if if he had said something. Being 200 feet off on downwind is not where you want to be as a student. No. So what you're telling me is when my DPE for Friday starts talking to me on final, <laughs> I just need to tell him to shut the hell up <laughs> and say those words. Yeah. And uh, Elliot knows the DPE. I'm curious how he would react to that way. No, I will tell him I need a sterile cockpit yeah, about it. Below 10,000 feet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Because that's the commercial. <laughs> I want to throw one more thing about, about distractions. I'm not trying to talk too much. That's what CFIs do. Please. The number one distraction I see today with midlife pilots, any H pilot really is fixation on their iPad and inside, especially as VFR pilots. You need to be looking outside. It is so pervasive these days. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, I'd say 90% of the people I fly with are just like looking down. And that's where Ben, like you said, the guy put, or the person put the towel over the instruments right. for you. Yeah, look outside. So... If there's a takeaway from this, try to look outside more. Nate, is there anything that we haven't covered that you just really want to make sure that you said? I mean, I think you were pumping us up a lot earlier. Maybe that was before we went online. But um, no, but is there anything that you just feel like you want to communicate to our listeners or anything we haven't covered? The only thing I'll reference back to what I said earlier, if you see something in aviation that's been that way forever, it's okay to, to question it, right? And I, I commented, gosh, a couple of days ago about here's how much time you have before your fuel runs out, right? And 
I think it was, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they called me out on it and they said, no, it's actually X, Y, Z seconds. And I'm like, you know what? I just, I pulled that out of folklore that somebody had been telling me for, you know, we've been passing down forever. And that's the thing we all need to challenge, right? We need to, you know, if something has been said for forever, like, let's see if that's the real truth. Yeah. And that one was in, is an easy one to test. That was in, in discord. Yeah. And the conversation was, if you don't have fuel, if you set your selector to off or whatever we have it, how long will your engine run at idle? How long will it run with some amount of RPM? And yeah, I was, I was like, oh, this is a good question. I have to go test this because you can do that on the ground. Just, just shut off the fuel. See, see how long it runs. That's relatively safe to do. I like this. This is your legacy, Nate. It's uh, We yeah. can even say, this is the guy that said the buck stops here. If something seems suspect, that might be a long time tradition. You can ballard it. <laughs> <laughs> I call ballard. I like it. I got to trademark well, that real quick. Okay. I like <laughs> it. Yeah. What got you into the video editing? Because your your video editing skills are great. Um, yeah. We're, we're going to link to that. What you do is really well done. I appreciate it. I, one of my, I guess it's, I don't know, character issues is that I study things too much. And you know, once I decided I wanted to try to put some content out there, I was like, oh, this really has to be good. So I started studying and studying and studying. And then one day I was like, enough, I got to put it out there. And if it's good enough, it's good enough. But that's probably the reason is because I've just spent too much time in pitching <laughs> resolve and lighting and sound and all kinds of stuff. That's great, man. You do great stuff though. It, and I love how really condensed is. and thoughtful it is. Yeah. Nathan I, I Ballard, Saper Flying is his YouTube channel, everyone. Please go give it a subscribe because he really does put great material out. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me here for this conversation. This is fantastic. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. What else do we need to cover? Um, we have a meetup in April, April 26th through the 28th. We fly have in. A, it's a fly-in meetup. Fly-in. <laughs> What's the difference? Uh, like a thousand bucks. Okay. <laughs> we have a form out there, don't we, Ted? That we do. People can access. Yeah, there's an RSVP form and give your level of interest. If you're like, maybe I'll make it, maybe not. There's space for that on the form. How do they access the form? Remind uh, me. It'll, it'll be in the doobly-doo in the show notes. And yeah, starting to see a lot of responses from that and start to figure this thing out. So. No, we've actually gotten a crazy amount of responses. And if even yeah. a quarter of them show up, it's going to be a hell of a time. So I really hope that people uh, fill this form out, let us know, but definitely look to come to Nashville because I, I can't handle all these bachelorettes by myself. <laughs> As Elliot put it earlier, it'd be the white claw crawl. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, but so, it'd, be a, it'd be a great time. There's some really good flying around here for those that haven't flown in this particular area. It's got its own sort of challenges with the airspace, but it's all very manageable. It's it's pretty. Uh, there's a lot of places to go, a lot of options, and we're all going to be right next to the airport, which is right next to not the BNA airport, the big one, the Class Charlie, but the Delta John Tune. We'll be based out of there. There's so many things to to do, but what we've you know, as much as we're going to be doing a lot of flying and all these things, the best part is always just hanging out with each other and and the hangs and and all that. So I'm super stoked. Uh, everybody get those forms in. Yeah, yeah. Let us know how you feel. That's that's about it for tonight. Anything else we need to cover, fellas? In two weeks, we're going to have a big end-of-the-year extravaganza show. Expect it to be a little longer, a little less podcasty, a little more video. So More whiskey? Making some plans for that. Sure, Ooh. more whiskey. It's all information whiskey. 
Yeah. Very good. I love it. Nathan, thanks again for joining us tonight. And everybody in the chat, we appreciate your participation. We're glad you're with us tonight. And signing off episode 53 of the Midlife Pilot Podcast. Good night, everybody. Good night.